Today in the garage, we have my good friend and colleague for over 25 years, Nadir Sachek. Nadir is an experienced and respected criminal lawyer in Toronto, known for his exceptional ability to achieve desirable results as he completely devotes his efforts and time to the people he represents. Today we spoke about the importance of the preliminary inquiry and the advice he has for young lawyers. Whether you're driving your Bimmer SUV, jamming with your Jackson, or prepping a certiorari motion, let's step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get it to know. Good afternoon, Nadia. How are you, Paul? Good. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, today, I want to take the opportunity to pick your brain and, and, and help spread the word about the changes to the preliminary inquiry. Uh, you've practiced for a few years. Uh, I remember first meeting you up at the Finch Courts many years ago, and uh, you've always impressed me as a fantastic and committed lawyer and a, one heck of an advocate. And you know my name for you was always Earl. Thank you, and my name for you has always been Austin. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, the preliminary inquiry, let's talk about it. What is a preliminary inquiry? A preliminary inquiry is a legal proceeding in which a judge has to determine where an individual is charged for an indictable offense, and we will go through the amendments, but an indictable offense, a judge has to determine whether or not there's any evidence upon which a reasonable jury properly instructed on all the elements of the offense can return a verdict of guilty. If that threshold is met, the matter has to proceed to a trial at the Superior Court. Now, when is it available? Because in order to understand what a preliminary inquiry is, you have to understand when it's available. It's now, as of September 19, 2019, available only in cases where an individual is charged for an indictable offense for which the punishment is 14 years or more. Previously, prior to September 19, 2019, with some exceptions, we don't have to go into those exceptions, it was available for most other indictable offenses. So that's the way I would describe a preliminary inquiry. And you've talked about what it's available for. Prior to these changes, how did you use um, the uh, preliminary inquiry for your client's benefit, and has that changed? Well, um, yes, it has changed, uh, and let's deal with the changes. So now, uh, it'll only be available if an individual is charged for very serious criminal offenses. So, for example, murder, attempt murder, aggravated sexual assault, robberies, and some of the drug offenses, possession for the purpose of trafficking, etc. So previously, it would be available for sexual assaults and other indictable offenses. And so now we're limited in the sense that it's no longer going to be available for as many offenses. It is an extremely critical and useful tool. I have always taken advantage of a preliminary inquiry, except in the rarest of circumstances. And why? So let's talk about why one would want to use a preliminary inquiry. We've talked about what it is and what the threshold is. One, it is an excellent tool for discovery. For many, for many individuals, uh, irrespective of this notion of full disclosure, 
we have to realize full disclosure is not evidence. It's anticipated evidence. That evidence has not been scrutinized. It has not been tested. It has not been analyzed. That witness who has provided a statement to the police in the past, inconsistent statements have not been brought up. Uh, issues such as the bias, objectivity, or impartiality of the witness has not been explored. And so it's critical for the purpose of discovery, one. Two, in many cases, it's available as a tool for resolution. Let me give you an example. A murder case. Your client is charged with first-degree murder or second-degree murder. It is your understanding that this ought not to be a murder trial, and in fact, the right result would be a manslaughter as opposed to an outright acquittal. So one could utilize the preliminary inquiry if done properly, and that's the key, if it's done properly, to elicit evidence, favorable evidence, consistent with the theory that this was more like a manslaughter. At the conclusion of the preliminary inquiry, one could approach the Crown. I have done so successfully on several cases and come to a resolution whereby your client is prepared to and the Crown is prepared to accept a plea to manslaughter. That's the second reason. Third reason, drug cases, for example. Um, the preliminary inquiry judge does not have the power to make charter rulings. It's not a court of a competent jurisdiction. However, one may want to set up the, 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 the basis for a charter challenge later on. So, for example, Section 8, unreasonable search and seizures, arbitrary detention, racial profiling cases. As a defense counsel, again, if it's done properly, you can lay the foundation for your charter challenges. Thereafter, use a preliminary inquiry transcript or viva voce evidence to supplement it to argue how the individual's charter rights were breached. Another reason why one may want to do a preliminary inquiry is to set a foundation for uh, other uh, applications. So, for example, uh, third-party records applications, uh, a further disclosure application. Uh, as counsel, you may have an understanding or an idea that there is some disclosure that's missing or that the witness may have made other statements. You can explore that at the preliminary inquiry. Thereafter, bring an application at the, at the Superior Court. So there are many, many reasons why one would want to do a preliminary inquiry, and I can go on and on. And so our audience, our experienced lawyers, as well as new calls, uh, who are desirous to practice uh, in the area of criminal law, you're able to convey the true purpose of a, of a preliminary inquiry and, and, and the differing purposes. Is i, I, I got to ask you, because you, you know we talk about it uh, all the time, our war stories. Uh, Put it into perspective for those that are listening. Give us an example, like uh, you want to be able to pin an officer down or discover an officer in respect of an allegation of racial profiling. What kind of questions would you ask? Well, so we all know that there is a danger of asking open-ended questions at the trial, and there is a danger for asking a question for which you don't have an answer, right? Because inevitably, the answer could hurt you. My practice is ask the dangerous questions at the preliminary inquiry. Find out what the Crown's case is at its highest. Find out illicit information that could be damning. So, for example, one can explore as to all the grounds why a police officer pulled the individual over. So, 
Were you notified by any civilian that the person was engaged in criminality? Yes or no? Were you notified by any police officer? Did you have any other independence evidence, independent evidence that the, 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 the person driving a car, let's say, was engaged in any, any, any criminality? Aside from that, what other, so for example, I would never want to ask at a trial, what other information did you have that this person driving this particular car that you pulled over was engaged in some form of criminality? Because at the trial, the, the witness may very well have an answer that could be damning. Ask that at the preliminary inquiry, because if he does not or she does not have any other information, that's to your credit, if the officer gives you some information that is damning, you can think about it and later on attempt to neutralize it at the trial or establish that the information given by the police officer was inaccurate. So, for example, request radio communications to confirm or deny whether or not what the police officer said at the preliminary inquiry was accurate. So that's how I would use it. Uh, and I've seen you, I've seen you because I've had the opportunity to work on multi-accused uh, trials with you and where we've gone through preliminary inquiry, where I've seen you in such a strategic fashion, say, summarize, you've enumerated one and two and three, and four, and those are the complete ones. There's nothing else. And I see you get the officer saying, you're right. There's nothing else. There's nothing else. Until you get to trial and you're able to deal with them and impeach them because there is something else that they've hit. That's right. That's right. And there's other, so let me give you a, a, a two war stories. Both cases were in London, Ontario. Both individuals were wanted for murder. Both individuals allegedly committed the murder on the same street corner. Both individuals walked into my office and indicated that they were wanted. Um, prior to me even surrendering to uh, the individuals to the police in both different cases, one was in 2013, one, one was in 2016, the offense date, I sat down with the individuals and we actually went through the allegations from their perspective. And I looked at them and I said, I would not want to do this trial in front of a jury in London, Ontario on a murder. And would you two consider a manslaughter? And both said, absolutely yes, because both were implicated. And I treated the preliminary inquiry as a trial. I hammered away at every weakness. I brought out as many uh, pieces of evidence favorable with the defense theory. In both cases, the Crown were not prepared to resolve prior to the preliminary inquiry with a plea to manslaughter. In one of them, after nearly 30 days, and my co-counsel was Russell Silverstein, he defended the other individual, the Crown agreed to, from my client, give a plea on manslaughter, on the other case, in 2016, it was only after hearing a couple of days of evidence, the Crown and the officer in charge asked me if I would consider a plea to a manslaughter. And so what, again, I did was utilize the preliminary inquiry in such a manner to hammer away the Crown's case. So the Crown recognizes that the right result, ultimately, is probably a manslaughter, not a murder, and not an outright acquittal. And it saved the administration of justice a lot of court time. It saved legal aid a lot of resources. And it saved 
the, 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 the public, the taxpayer, a lot of resources if, it was, if a preliminary inquiry is done properly and in a meaningful manner, it can uh, achieve desirable results for all parties concerned. And that war story explains a certain strategy used in that, those particular cases. Um, have you used the preliminary inquiry uh, for a different strategic fashion? Have you employed uh, uh, different uh, thought processes in attacking or not attacking witnesses? Absolutely. So, uh, I, I, identification case. Uh, again, I treat in an identification case, uh, I'm going back to many years, the uh, complainant uh, is of Asian background. The uh, individual charge is African-Canadian. And she identifies the individual by way of a photo lineup. And my client is arrested. And what I did on that case is, for example, spend a great deal of time on exactly the opportunity to observe. It's not simply asking, like, and did you have any chance to observe? Well, you were walking in a particular direction. You were looking uh, in the front, yes. You heard the steps behind you. Yes, I did. Within a couple of seconds, you saw the individual, correct? Yes. And you were terrified during those couple of seconds? Yes. And during those couple of seconds, it was when he, pers when he grabbed your purse, yes. Then you fell, yes. And as you fell, you were terrified, right. And then he ran, right. And then you saw the individual only from the back, right. And so you pinned the individual down, and now you got the individual to say that they've only had two seconds to really identify the individual. Then you go through the photo lineup. You go through each picture, illustrate how that particular individual she picked out fits the description of the other individuals. And ultimately, ultimately, uh, at the end of the preliminary inquiry, she said, I'm not exactly sure. He was committed to stand trial at the Judicial Pretrial Superior Court. The Crown had the transcript and indicated at the Judicial Pretrial that there's absolutely no basis that they could get a conviction and the charges were drawn. That's in an ID case. But I have lots of other examples for other offenses. Okay. So... Um Post-September uh, of 2019, have you had an opportunity to run any uh, preliminary inquiries, and what changes have you seen? How have judges acted? How have the Crowns acted in those cases? Have uh, they pulled the case and, 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 and filed an, a direct indictment instead? Have they let you still have your right to a preliminary inquiry in those limited cases? What have they done? What have you seen? Well, uh there is one case, uh, there was an argument, as we all know, whether or not uh, my client was entitled to a preliminary inquiry because the offense date predated September 19, 2019, and my client had a formal election for a prelim preliminary inquiry and a judge and jury. It was a sexual assault case, and in my view, my practice has always been in every single sexual assault case to do a preliminary inquiry. In this particular case, after the Court of Appeal ruled that, yes, the defense is in these circumstances entitled to a preliminary inquiry, the Crown decided to re-elect, which the Crown can, by the way, I found out, to proceed summarily. So hence, I was deprived of my right to a preliminary inquiry. So the Crowns now are going to do that. Um, I have a murder case where the Crown has decided to prefer an indictment in, in Peel. Uh, there may be various reasons for that, and I don't want to necessarily get into that. 
Um, and so I have, other than one preliminary inquiry in a sexual assault, which I actually commenced the preliminary inquiry, I have not yet done a preliminary inquiry using the, well, since September 19, 2019, since the enactments came into play. And what are your colleagues telling you? Well, um, many of them have not yet done a preliminary inquiry post-September 19, 2019, COVID, as of March 2020. As we all know, our practices have changed dramatically. But I was looking at the am amendments in preparation for this garage series, and there are several sections that could be problematic from the defense point of view. Let's talk about them. Okay, let's talk about them. And I know you have some notes on them. Okay, so one of them is a, a section, and I will try to, I will have to go to my notes. Um, so this is one I suspect the Crown uh, is going to rely upon. Now, we all know uh, that in the past, uh, the Crown would say we will only call three or four witnesses. But the defense wants to hear from five or six or seven witnesses. The Crown can take the position and have in the past as well. That's for you to call. We're not going to call them. We don't need them. Um, and we would take the position, well, fine, I'll call them at the end of the preliminary inquiry. Once you finish your case, make them available. We will examine them, right? Well, now, as of September 19th, 2019, September 19th, Section 537, subsection 1.01, I suspect is going to be utilized by the Crown. It says, the justice has the power to limit the scope of the preliminary inquiry to specific issues and limit the witnesses to be heard on these issues. So the Crown may very well take the position, you wanted to hear a witness on this issue, we're only calling one, not two or three. You then say, well, I'm gonna call them because I have that right at the end of your case to call witnesses. However, that right now has been prescribed. The justice can take the position uh, that no, yes, you have the right to call the witnesses, but on this particular issue, I'm limiting your ability, and I don't want to necessarily hear two or three additional witnesses on this issue. And therefore, we may be deprived, when I say we, the defense, from calling those witnesses. Do you think that uh, defense counsel will have to broaden their statement of, uh, of issues prior to the preliminary inquiry, include almost everything uh, like a basket clause at the end, and then uh, if there is a limit that uh, there will be challenges, mandamus possibly, to allow you to continue a preliminary inquiry? Paul, I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that. <laughs> so right now I'll take the position I'm not sure how it's going to play out. You know, I guess in the back pocket we always have is, and this is how we move the law forward is we challenge things. Absolutely. And, and I know you challenge things, and you're talking about how you do that uh, for your client's benefit in the preliminary inquiry. So let me let you continue. Okay. So um, I think um, for, for young lawyers, um, I think this is a critical piece of advice. I've read some prelim transcripts in the past which were not particularly impressive. 
And why I say that, it was simply a, a, an attempt by the defense counsel to ask just some questions in general, who, what, where, why, when, how. I get it. I get it. But really, when you approach a preliminary inquiry, as you approach every case, you've got to have a theory. Ask yourself, why am I doing a preliminary inquiry? What am I trying to accomplish at this preliminary inquiry? What are my goals at this preliminary inquiry? Am I simply trying to discredit a witness? Am I laying a foundation for a third-party records application? Am I approaching this preliminary inquiry in a manner where I can get the Crown to resolve the case and therefore attack the Crown's case? Many people may say, don't do that. My view is do it. That's my personal uh, way, I, the way I practice it. So if you're going to do a preliminary inquiry, ask yourself, why? What am I going to accomplish? And what is my theory? Another thing, I've seen many cases where the lawyer is using the preliminary inquiry simply as a discovery tool and has not read every single line in the disclosure. Know your case inside out before you go to the preliminary inquiry. You will then be able to make an informed decision. Go to the scene. I will always go to the scene of the crime, even at the preliminary inquiry stage. It allows you to ask questions in a way that you can understand what was really going on. What was the witness's ability to observe at that time? What, what, what was the traffic like? What's the lighting like? Um, you really get a real sense of a case if you go to the scene. So you have to have a strategy at the preliminary inquiry as opposed to simply saying, well, I want a preliminary inquiry and these are the issues that I want to hear the evidence on critical. The other thing is I tend to uh, prepare my cross-examinations in detail. I write them out. Uh, some people have chapters. Spend a lot of time thinking about the cross at the preliminary inquiry. Don't simply just go in there with the disclosure and ask the questions after the Crown is finished doing the examination chief. Well, let me clarify this point or not. Go in there with a clear strategy and utilize the preliminary inquiry to accomplish what you had set out initially to do at the preliminary inquiry. When you're doing that, uh, do you also think of, okay, I, I've gone down the strategy, I've got them to say what I need them to say. Do you then go on and add that extra that it's not this, and it's not that, and it's not this? Not necessarily. Uh, not necessarily, Paul, because again, you got to be very careful, right? Because at some point, so for, let's, the preliminary inquiry judge, and, 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 and we won't get into a big debate, is really not there to assess the credibility of witnesses, let's say, right? Uh, is not there to talk about the reliability of the witnesses. So let's give an example. A witness in a police statement has said this, it happened in such and such manner. Let's call that manner A. At the preliminary, and we have that. At the preliminary inquiry, the witness says it happened in such and such a manner. That manner is B. Well, you now know there's inconsistent statements. But you also know that unless the witness totally recants and says your client didn't do it, there's a very good chance that your client will be committed to stand trial. So what would you do in that hypothetical scenario? Well, you may want to say, 
well, your version B today is under oath. Yes, and it's the truth, isn't it? Yes, and you would never lie. No, and it's honest, right? And you're trying to help everyone here. Yes, you're not lying to her honor. No, I'm not. You want her honor to get your evidence. Yes, and that is the, in fact, evidence, right? Yes. Sir, you also made a statement to the police, right? Yes. And you were telling the truth to the police, yes, and you wouldn't want the police to, 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 ba to base an arrest upon incorrect information. No, I wouldn't. And so, again, you had no reason to lie to the police, no. You were being honest to the police, right? You were being helpful, and you may want to leave it there because at the trial, you now have a solid grounds for impeaching. If the witness at the trial describes the scenario where it's happening, scenario A, you take him back to the evidence at the preliminary inquiry that there were certain it was scenario B. If the witness at the trial says it was scenario B, you take him back to scenario A while you were telling the truth to the police, right? And this is what you said. If the witness, in fact, comes up with scenario C, then you've got three separate inconsistent statements, two under oath, one to the police. So you've got to, again, it goes back to what am I trying to accomplish? What is the strategy? Think in advance what you want to do. Um, and so that's how I would approach that particular case. No, I really uh, love the war stories you give us and the examples that you're able to provide. Um, what would you say to young lawyers about top three things that they should do in preparation beyond make sure you're prepared and you have a strategy and you have an objective? Um, nerves are there. What can you help them with? Well, nerves will always be there. They don't go away, do they? Nerves will always be there, right? I'm nervous doing this interview with you, right? It's just the nature of the beast. Speak to other lawyers. Get advice from other senior lawyers, right? Be fearless, right? And don't be afraid to make mistakes. The problem is, unfortunately, we all realize the mistakes that we make are critical, uh, but we all make mistakes. I make mistakes and everyone I know makes mistakes. Work really hard. The best you could do is prepare, speak to other lawyers, know your case. And yes, you'll make mistakes. So does everyone, including the judge. The judge was a lawyer at some point. The judge appreciates how difficult the job is. And, 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 and be fearless. At the same time, be highly respectful, and the judge will appreciate it. The judges, by and large, appreciate a lawyer who is hardworking, who is fearless, who is thoughtful, and well-prepared. And if that lawyer makes a mistake, the judge recognizes that that's just part of the, 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 this job and every other job. We're not all infallible. I know that you and I have been involved in uh, different cases where we've had uh, a number of other colleagues uh, representing multi-accused on a trial. Um, everybody has a different style. Um, is there anything you can tell the audience um, that will help them prepare to create their own style? Because I think at the end of the day, we can all get to that same goal. We may get to a different, but as long as we've prepared have a strategy, understand the law, are fearless, as you say, and remind us all to be, and respectful, civil, that we can get there. Be yourself. There is no magic. 
my my view is that uh, you don't have to be a great orator to be a criminal lawyer. I'm not a great orator. Uh, you don't have to be the most intelligent individual. I'm definitely not the most intelligent individual. I'm far from it. Be yourself. I'm one of these persons. My voice gets elevated. I get animated. I pace. Stephen Bernstein, who's in this chamber, does it even more than I do. And that's who we are. Ironically, I get so impressed by somebody who's just at the podium, never raises their voice, calm, cool, composed, because that's what that person's personality usually is like. They're much more calmer. They are very cerebral in their outlook. So to give you an example, Faisal Mirza may approach a preliminary inquiry. His style or Ravine Pillay's style would be very different from my style. They may find my style entertaining. I find their style highly effective. So it's, you have to be yourself. You can't model yourself after another lawyer. Okay. Wanted some rapid-fire questions? Okay, let's see if I can answer them. <laughs> um, as an advocate, um, what was the number one uh, tool that uh, you learned uh, to bring to uh, the courtroom every day? I guess it goes back to my articling days at Pinkowski, Lockyer, Quinter. Client's the most important individual from a defense lawyer's point of view, and, and, and be fearless. Present every legal argument effectively, um, and, and, and don't be afraid to, to defend the client with the best ability that you can. Toughest um, ethical question that uh, faced you during all your years of practice? Wow. Uh, Well, clearly, I mean, we all have a situation where our clients want to get up and say something, and they've told us they're going to do that, and you, you, you simply cannot. Uh, we simply cannot be a party to their lie. Um, oh boy, I've had so many uh, issues. Uh, one of them, I don't know if it was tough, um, one of them was I had engaged in resolution discussions and presented a scenario uh, for the resolution discussions. Then after having done that, uh, my client changes his mind and wants to go to trial. And the trial strategy or the evidence that would unfold could very well have been different from what I had indicated at the JPT. Uh, as to the fact scenario that my client was prepared to plea on, at that point, I was not sure what to do, and the Crown suggested I remove myself, and I did. Uh, I, I just don't think it was worth fighting it. Oof. I've had um, other cases where the uh, victim will approach me afterwards um, and want to talk to me about the case. Um, it's kind of clear that um, that what they may very well be saying in court is the truth, um, yet you've just got to go ahead, right? So I've had this actual case in, uh, out of town where you'd be sitting in a small area with your client, you've been cross-examining the complainant, 
and the complainant approaches you and starts talking to you and starts telling you how their life has been so horrible since the incident happened. Um, you know, I don't necessarily think it's an ethical issue because my job is to, and I'd, I'd stop them and say, no, counsel, I know you're doing your job, go ahead. But it, it's difficult. Um, and where I had to then continue hammering away at that individual, um, realizing that, you know, that individual is probably telling the truth, notwithstanding all the inconsistencies. But that's, again, our job, right? Favorite book you read in the last five years? Law book? Any book? Two books. I love reading uh, any book uh, involving Clarence Darrow, the, 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 the absolute genius, far ahead of his times. Um, you know, the, the practice of law then was very different than it is now, but the best book for me, for me, uh, on advocacy would be Posner and Dodd, Cross-Examination, Science and Techniques. There is no other book that I can recommend above and beyond that. It, it, in my view, it is the Bible uh, on advocacy. I think I'm part of that congregation. We've learned that uh, we cross for dough and we close for show. That's right. <laughs> and in closing, I just want to thank you, Nadir, for spending time with us at the garage. And we're on uh, uh, University Avenue today in your law chambers. And uh, this has been quite enjoyable. I get to a point now where I ask you, please plug yourself. Give us a plug. How do people get to find you uh, if there are lawyers out there and they might need some advice uh, and some scholarly advice or some good experience, the sage advice, how can they get a hold of you? You know what? I'm still old school. Call me, text me, 416-702-9029, or you could email me at just nadiorsatchik at gmail.com. I think I've never ignored um, a question asked by a lawyer. I don't profess to know a lot. I just know certain areas. Uh, but I'd be happy to always talk uh, to younger lawyers or any other lawyer, and I'd probably end up learning more from them, in fact. Um, so happy to chat, happy to text, happy to email, You're or great. happy to meet in person. Always been a great friend. Thank you for joining Thank us you today. All. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. A shout-out to our fantastic producers, Xenia Sefna and Jason Cooper. For more free legal education and to check out what we've been doing for the past 10 years, go to thelawgarage.com. That is thelawgarage.com.